Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me. We are here as a podcast to bring together entrepreneurs, startups, and founders with uh, the money people, the money types, angels, VCs, family offices, and investment firms. And uh, we want to remind everybody that we make no recommendations to buy or invest in anything. You should do your own research. That's up to you and not us. What we try to do is find founders that we like and also find uh, venture capitalists and angels and investors and family offices that we like. And to that end, uh, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by James Spurway. He is uh, here with us today from Indochina uh, Consulting. And um, he is, uh, I, I, I think you've been called the fundraising angel. So you're really coming to us from the money side. Um, on the on uh, with with 31 years in Singapore under your belt, that's pretty amazing. You've you've been there a long time, and I want to before you start. And first of all, welcome, James. Great to have you. But um, lovely to be here. I want to, and I should point out, he's from Australia. If you're wondering about that accent, I never <laughs> do this, but I'm going to do this for you. I want to read your LinkedIn um, blurb. It says, James Spurway, I am a purpose driven, impact focused angel lead investor who helps first-time sustainable business model founders navigate their external fundraising journey. And I, I, I knew when I read that, that I could not say that better than you, but, and you managed to say that without any commas. So uh, you, my hat's off to you. That was not easy. Um, but what led you to this philosophy um, after 31 years in Singapore? I think you probably have to go back to the, I kind of my background, the start of where I came from to understand why I do what I do. It, it's kind of intertwined, I think, in most of our stories, right? It's the, the kind of reasoning behind the, the person we are. And I, I come from a, a very small um, rural setting in, in Queensland, Australia. I'm a farmer's kid. In fact, I'm the youngest in a tribe of six, and all the older ones, five, were sisters. So I'm the, the only boy in the family. And I think I learned early that in our case, we were, we were dirt poor. I mean, the concept of dirt poor, people just use that as a phrase. We actually had a dirt floor in our house. So, you know, dirt poor meant a lot, a lot, a lot more different uh, connotations to us. So if you grow up poor and if you learn that hard work gets you where you, you want to go, but you kind of get some help from outside, you kind of realize, I think, pretty early in life that giving back is almost like a natural thing. Even though you didn't have much or none of us had much, I think we learned very early that part of the life was just to give. You gave what you could and that kind of came back. It's just this kind of concept of the like virtuous circle or you know the concept of karma here in Asia. And I've always been that way. And so when I started my entrepreneurial journey some 31 years ago, I suppose early in the piece, I realized that I was good at making money. I was good at doing deals. But what I really enjoyed was seeing other people succeed. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I, I was happy to kind of get up and succeed and do my thing. But I think what I got the most buzz out of back then was helping other people who were kind of breaking into the same thing that I was trying to do just get through those initial periods of time and get uh, find their feet. And that, that's kind of like the start of my, I suppose, quote, unquote, mentoring side of my uh, fundraising and my 
angel investing. I've always helped and always loved helping mentor young startups or old startups, it doesn't matter what their age was, to get through that initial rough period of adjustment from corporate life or something else to kind of this crazy roller coaster we, we all know as a, a startup. Like a lot of angels and VCs, you were initially an entrepreneur. What was your first company? So my first company existed up until five years ago. It ran for 23 years consecutively. Um, it had the name Indochina in it as well, because back in the day, in the early 90s, Indochina was a defined area of Asia. It was Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And those three countries or markets were opening up when the rest of the markets like China, let's say Hong Kong, uh, Indonesia, to a certain extent, um, Malaysia, Singapore, were considered established. So hence the Indochina. And I was sitting there in Vietnam in 1990 um, and left uh, a high-paying job in, in a, as five-star general manager of a hotel to start my first company. So Indochina Group was actually a holding company we set up. There was uh, my wife my wife and myself, funny thing, right, a side story, doing business with your partner. Interesting. Um, I jumped I jumped out of out of work into a startup and had just been married literally a month or two before and then was working with my wife in the same company. But it, it worked out. Um, but we had three more investors. Uh, there was a engineer, an architect and someone who was more or less a project management person. And our first business model was to help uh, 500 sort of like the, the top 500, what do you call it? The Fortune 500 type companies or the Fortune 250 companies who wanted to come into Vietnam, help them establish usually um, an operating base, which meant a joint venture partner or some kind of partnership. Oftentimes it meant building something. They wanted to build a factory or an office or whatever. So we did that local market entry and then also development work for them to get them where they wanted to go to start them off in their business. So we needed to have engineering chops, which we did, and building chops. But I was really just the, to what, for want of a better word, I guess I was a lobbyist. I mean, I, I used to find the right partner, get the government side on board, get a license. Um, oftentimes you needed a joint venture license followed by a building license, an operating license, all that sort of stuff, regulatory red, red, red tape that the, um, the former communist, now socialist Vietnam started off with, and they streamlined it since. But that was my my business. I, I really didn't have any concept of anything digital because, I mean, we're talking about early 90s. Didn't have any concept of anything that would be scalable. It was just a business that would operate. It was working well. It was cash flow, obviously, positive from day one. It allowed us to have staff. Um, and it, it, it kind of allowed me to travel all around Vietnam doing deals, which was in those days, fantastic. And did you speak many languages? Did you speak Vietnamese? I didn't when I got there. You have to understand Australia is a monotone culture. We are, I guess now, not quite the same as back then. So back then, you would have the traditional options in school. I went to a public school. So the trad traditional option was if you went to high school, I think the last two years correct me if I'm wrong, last two years or maybe in the last four years, you had language as an option. So you had French or German. So again, 60s Australia was a little bit like uh, an overhang from the British Empire still. Uh, continental languages, you know, French and, and German were considered to be somehow more relevant uh, because we hearkened back to the, the old country, to England. 
And so I took um, French. And don't, don't, <laughs> don't, uh, don't forget, it also harkened back to colonialism. Yeah, exactly. So I took French in, in school and promptly left school, never spoke a word of French, never went to France, never went anywhere. And fast forward to those, those periods of time when I got to uh, Vietnam, so we're talking about you know, 20 years on uh, almost, um, or 17, 15 years on, I got to, to Vietnam, started to learn, because we did, our, our hotel's policy was foreigners should have some Vietnamese, started to learn in our own, um, we had our own uh, team, our own training team, uh, Vietnamese, and then realized that, again, this is a little bit of my DNA, I'm not really good at structured learning, but I'm really good at just kind of um, jumping in and immersing, and so emotion learning. So I just used to go on the street as much as I was allowed to, right? I was not, not supposed to go anywhere without a bodyguard and, I mean, literally security, all that sort of stuff back in the day. It was a bit uh, – but I used to go on the street, uh, eat, eat, eat and drink at local cafes on the street, and just by walking around and then trying to engage and kind of pretending you couldn't do anything and there was only one way to learn, that was to, 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 to parrot or to repl replicate what they were saying – I picked up a, a little bit of a flow. And I think once you get a bit of a flow, at least for the basics, like, hello, how are you? I'd like a coffee that's hot, you know, a coffee that's hot, um, a beer that's cold, all that sort of stuff. Um, you kind of break through. And after that, I, I guess I improved somewhat, but I, I would say that I spent a lot of time uh, working and not as much time as I probably could on, on personal development back in the day. But I, I used to get by. Yes, I, I can still now have conversations with some of the people I made who were still friends back in the day, but not nearly as good as my German. Funny enough, right? When you've got an, a reason to become fluent in a language, you do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, probably French was pretty useful in Vietnam too, because uh, the French had occupied Vietnam before the Americans. So um, yeah. let's cut to the entrepreneurs. So, so um, you said you had your business up till five years ago. You're um, uh, helping companies set up in Vietnam, set up shop in Vietnam or Cambodia or Laos. Um, can you tell me what caused you to make the, the turn or the pivot toward directly um, helping entrepreneurs and yeah. raising, give, you know, investing in entrepreneurship and founders? So I've actually gone through a couple of transitions. That early business in Vietnam worked quite well and was was let to be run by someone else when we left um but i i guess i had a second or a third if you like iteration of my life i almost feel like i've reinvented myself a couple of times because it just needed to be freshened myself up so i had another period in life where although we had a company in in hong kong that was a hong kong company was doing business in vietnam um i actually left and spent a good deal of time based in europe so that came about fortuitously. I was back home in holidays, um, and I met. I came through a, a mutual friend. Uh, I met a, an older gentleman at the time who was a classically trained Austrian, Austrian uh, by national nationality, a classically trained um, uh, pianist, like he was literally a concert pianist, who then um, uh, went and did architecture, studied architecture, and and was also an architect and working in an architectural firm in Chicago and for some reason got sick of that and was walking down the street one day, saw a sign saying traders wanted and became a, <laughs> a commodity trader. Um, later on, a, a very, very successful Forex, foreign, ex, foreign exchange uh, trader, had one of the first 
black box systems, we would now say algorithmic trading systems in the day. And, and I, I joined him and we did four or five years of fund management, FX fund management. So I had a successful fund management um, sort of period of my time as well, and also trading commodities. So that led into the next stage, which is what we're talking about. After you've traded commodities, meaning you've done transactional work, where you've made and lost a lot of money over a period of time, but the net net effect is, you know, you may have been up, you may have been down, but if you were up, someone else was down because it's a net zero game oftentimes, but you don't see any result. So you've done all this maybe for five or 10 years. And what can you show for it besides balance, a bank balance is moving? Nothing, right? You can't show people having learned something or people now growing up in the world, or you can't show how many jobs you've created. You can't show anything like GNP growth or anything to do with long-term sustainable improvement in something other than just um, money. You, you kind of, I think anyone would come to the point where you say, this is not really something that's sustainable. It, it doesn't feel like, it's going anywhere. So it was then that I started looking around and seeing what can I do with my talent, my skill set that's that's useful, that, that's like going to help me. It's going to nourish me, but it's actually going to help other people. And again, I come back to this thing inside me that's been pushing me all my life. And so actually, I didn't start initially investing and an angel ment and mentoring and angel investing. I I actually jumped in initially as a um, adjunct uh, lecturer. I, I kind of was here in Singapore, found uh, a couple of colleges that were looking for uh, lectures on the, you know, the Bachelor of Business program or Bachelor of Economics program. And I started devoting hours, I mean, literally days. In some cases, I was, I was lecturing three out of four or four out of five days uh, on very little salary. It was almost free, but it was for, <laughs> no surprise, it was for Vietnamese students who would come from Vietnam into Singapore to do their bachelor's degree. So again, I had the affinity. I could speak a bit of the language. And I did that for a few years, and then it was it was that that kind of got me opened up to the idea of the concept of mentoring or giving back. And then I joined the um, what they call Startup Bootcamp Accelerator here in Singapore and Seedstars, and was mentoring, I guess, on a regular basis, probably two or three times a week I'd turn up. In those days, it was one of those structured things where they had sessions for people like me who'd go in and, you know, you do a session, you do a particular, let's say, um, a, a one-hour delivery on uh, maybe the, the fundraising structuring of a, of a, of a, of a startup, etc., and then you do ad hoc mentoring with the individual people you liked and connected to. So I was I was happy to do that, and that got me into um, angel investing because at the end of these accelerations, they have these demo days, right? These these pitch uh, sessions, and you get a chance to uh, relate to them and say, "I'd like I'd, you know, I'd like to invest with you. I'd like I'd like to kind of be part of that." But I, I guess my first three or four investments as an angel were people who I'd mentored, and that kind of got me into the concept. And from there, I, I guess I iterated many times to, to the kind of where we are today in terms of the business model. So typically, will you? Um, I, I want to talk, uh, and I, I should mention we're talking with James Spurway. He's uh, from Indochina Consulting. He's an uh, sometimes called the fundraising angel. He um, helps entrepreneurs. And one of the things I like about what you do, James, is you have an eye out for the, um, I want to say this in a nice way. Uh, I know you've called them misfits and cockroaches, but <laughs> you have an eye out for the entrepreneur 
who is not fully formed, who is not fully polished. That's kind of a soft spot for you. And uh, you find a lot of value there, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, I say that, and I think when I talk to people, I don't I obviously don't say cockroach in a, in, a, in a bad way, but it's it's the, let's say, the, the kind of concept that I have of someone who just won't go away, right, who's almost impossible to, uh, I hate the word kill, but you kind of like to get rid of. And, well, and that's... Survivor, right? The, the cockroach right. is the, the ultimate survivor, yeah. It, 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 and, it, and the misfit side is because if you looked at their profile and you compared that to what might be considered to be the profile of some of the larger successful companies, unicorn companies, they don't look like they would have ever had any chance or would, would likely become a unicorn. What do I mean? I mean, there's two classes of people in, in this, this section or this, this thing called startups. There's the typical ones and the ones who kind of think about stereotypical ones where we talk about um, people who've gone through an Ivy League college in, in the US, um, Stanford, Harvard, Wharton, UCLA, something like that, and then gone probably from there into one of the top five or six accelerators. You can you can think of who, who they are. Uh, and then out of that acceleration, they've probably been funded partially or fully on their first round. So without ever having to go through what I have to go through with, with my um, mentees, which is that fundraising process, they've really kind of managed to set themselves up in their first business. Now, whether that business succeeds and gets a, a Series A, Series B, Series C, et cetera, funding is, is not necessarily set in stone, but many of them do. So that's one path, one path you might say that gets you into becoming a founder and potentially a successful founder. Anyone who doesn't have that profile, maybe the next layer below that is people in the US who, again, have a better potential opportunity and percentage-wise a chance of success than anyone outside the U.S. And so your third level is anyone outside the U.S. And then with that, with that sort of outside the U.S., it depends what country you come from as to how far down the, the, the tree you are, how, how far down the, 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 uh, the pecking order you are. So you can imagine that someone from Vietnam or someone from Indonesia is probably way, way, way down in terms of, I'm not saying that the, you know, the, the, the venture capital funds from the US don't have their regional sort of partners and their regional setups looking for talent and local local accelerators and local VCs as well. But there's probably still not enough to go around. So it is a bit of a case of those those founders do need a little bit of luck to get from where they are into the spotlight or into the mainstream to have a chance to eventually become large and successful if that's what they want. And not everyone wants to, to become a unicorn. Thank heavens, I would say. So yes, I I don't because I don't have that pedigree. You know, poor farm boy from Australia dropped out of school. Ten years later, went and did a bachelor of business when he was almost thirty. I mean, no chance of doing an MBA. I was too busy working and doing a business and making money to to get that post grad. And so I don't kind of fit the mold myself. And I think if you don't, it'd be weird for me to be kind of saying I kind of really relate to the people coming through that top stream because I don't, I can't, I don't come from that background. So I do relate to the others. It's a natural fit. I help them. And I think in, in the process, they get a lot out of it. And I guess the other thing about helping people who are not typically um, the top, the top, you know, numbers in, in terms of startups is that I think if I did my numbers, I'd look at them as being potentially 
more more likely to succeed given the right opportunities and circumstances because they're used to let's say hardship they've come through hardship they, they're resilient more likely to succeed with given the same amount of money and the same opportunities than anyone who's come through a almost like a sort of gifted you know very very easy not much not much problem sort of a, a, a background because they've never faced hardship or resilience or problems. Let me ask you this. So let's put some meat on the bones of this idea. Uh, I'm going to call your your method the spur way. This is the spur way, not the other way. This is the spur way. So yeah. give us an example of an entrepreneur that fits that description that you are particularly proud of having worked with. Um, okay, there's a couple. So in in recent times, it's been female founders who I know, for example, I've went through and, and mentored at a couple of accelerators. A bit of a shout out here. There's a, there's a company called Creatella in Singapore. Um, they run an impact acceleration and venture uh, studio. And in the 2021 and 2022 iterations of, of She Disrupts, so She Disrupts Indonesia, She Disrupts Vietnam, and I'll be doing the She Disrupts um, Philippines in April. I met um, some teams who at the start in Indonesia were not even really confident speaking English. That was like first, in, first meeting, first, first kind of mentorship. Four, we, uh, four months later, when they did the demo day, they were as polished and as confident and as bright as any founder I've ever seen. And I've, I mean, I attend the, the 500 startups demo days. I attend these big OG, original gangster, you know, VC, Silicon Valley VC startup days, demo days. And I love their, their amazing kind of um, um, teams who are kind of, you know, really, really high energy, super focused. They polish their pitch. They worked on who, to, who presents what. But what I'm telling that, you. What's the name of the company and the name of the entrepreneurs? I want to make sure we don't we don't miss out on that. Um, in Indonesia, one's called Plepa, P-L-E-P-A-H, -E right? Um, and th that team is all about uh, helping local communities through basically it's all about um food food conversation uh, food sorry recycling <laughs> not wasting food right not wasting uh the actual so it's all about uh food security i suppose you'd say so they yeah. they in indonesia are doing quite well and then recently um uh in uh vietnam it's a company called um eq uh eq uo uh and they are they've got recycled uh straws things like straws out of rice uh that they actually get oh. something something which is edible but also biodegradable so and, and they're both female founding of actually majority female teams but female founders so indonesia and vietnam look the the one in vietnam i first met them on a, on a demonstration situation where i was a judge i then took them to one of my own competitions i ran a competition so they could get a, a bit more exposure they now gone through, I think, the third, probably the third demonstration, you know, pitching sort of session, and now they're well on the way with the amount of money they've raised from angels and also now VC. They'll be hitting the U.S. market soon, so they'll be actually going from Vietnam to the U.S. And that's what I mean by it might not be the the kind of traditional trajectory, but these these founders from Asia, if they in fact need to get into the U.S. market to become, let's say, large, successful, multinational, global, whatever, they can make it. They, they might not look the part in some ways, and they'll, they'll always be not quite the same, but their tenacity, 
once they get told what to do and how to do it, they just execute. And that's what it is. I mean, Michael, ideas are, are not worth much, right? It's all about execution. Um, it's all about your ability to deliver. Yeah, no question about that. And um, also, uh, you know, um, any any Asian entrepreneur coming from from Asia, different parts of Asia like Vietnam, um, you know, they're coming into a United States that whose attitude about um, Asian uh, the Asian population is is growing and expanding to include lots of talented people. In fact, there's a dispute in the U.S. right now about if they actually admitted people to schools like Harvard, like you mentioned, uh, yeah. based on, you know, merit and scores, the, they would be 85% Asian. <laughs> and that's a real yeah. issue in the United States. But James, let me ask you this. How can, where can people find you? What's the best way to contact you? I'm, I'm a little bit weird in that regard. I don't hang out in social much. I mean, I've, I've got a Twitter handle, but generally it's always LinkedIn. And I, and I, I suppose that's a little bit old school showing my age, but um, most people find me through LinkedIn. So, you know, that's I mean, how I found you. that's how yeah. I found you. And, and um, I want to, I just also want to say um, something about your philosophy because, you know, I've been doing lots of interviews. I've been meeting all kinds of new people all over the world. But you, you maybe because you actually come from a dirt floor, dirt poor family, um, which is which is very moving and and unusual um, in this day and age. I think that it has um, endowed you with um, a big heart, is how I would yeah. put it, and yeah. and that that you really have. I can tell, and I, I'm sure our our uh, listeners on the accelerator can tell that you have an attachment to these entrepreneurs and a pride that um, is not all that far from parental. Yes. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It actually, it, it does have a bit of that. And I know that that's probably how I feel at the time. You know, the old tuck them under the wing and get them through. But, but you, you'd have to be a bit silly, though, to not think that that's also commercially smart. And I'm not looking at the commercial side as being a leader, but I know that I'd be wrong to say that this this won't make sense commercially as well. It will. If I if I was looking at this in a number sense, analytically, in the statistical analysis, uh, I would say that if I, I'd be happy to match a hundred of those startups that I chose against a hundred, say from the U.S. And I think my win loss ratio would be higher. Well, I know I don't think I know it's going to be higher because one of the problems. It's not really a problem, but one of the issues I have with the traditional venture model, which is the unicorn um, hunting or unicorn-centric model, is that they kind of have the, the approach that we'll just let uh, everything play out. It's almost like the, you know, the, the jungle out there. So they'll, they'll have 100 bets, and they presume, presume, and I mean, this is, this is built into the model, that 50 to 60% will fail, and... You know, that they'll, in, the, in that 30% or 35% that succeed, they've got their one or two unicorns. They've got their, you know, maybe 10 doing 10x, uh, 10 doing 5x, and maybe a few doing, you know, 1 to 3x. And so their average return for the, the whole 100 is going to be something like um, 2 to 3 times or 3 to 4 times between 200% and 400% over 10 years. Um, but, but that doesn't really, Michael, stack up in terms of if you look at, the last 10 years and, and do some numbers, venture, you know, US venture, Europe venture, Asia venture, global venture is doing about an average of 15% IRR over 10 years. 
that's not stellar. That's not like super. And one of the reasons I believe is because their concept of letting those ones, those founders which they've invested in, but then don't seem to take off, right? They, they, they get the money, but they don't then grow dramatically. As soon as they don't grow dramatically for a few quarters, they kind of like cut loose in the sense that they just aren't given more um, mentoring, nurturing, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's the difference between what I do and what they do. I'm probably insane to spend the amount of time I do with each founder of each startup that I invest in because I figure it's my way of making sure they succeed, not hoping they succeed, not you know, leaving it up to chance, but, but lifting them up if necessary and sometimes probably being a bit blunt and a bit, a bit hard on them and to, you know, to get them to see that they're not going in the right direction. They told me they want to succeed. They're not. So it is a bit, it is a bit like parenting. You know, it's, it's, it's holding them to account. And I think if more people did that on their portfolios, they would get maybe instead of, you know, 60 to 70, 50 to 60% failing, they might get 30% failing or at least maybe 50, 50. But then if you do, you just have to work out the numbers. You are, there's no, pressure on you to do unicorns is this, is this pressure on you to do fairly good returns across a larger number n and your portfolio returns going to be better than a standard sort of vc model so again I'm, I'm trying to break or bend what's given to me as being the way you do it and i'm, I'm willing to go my own way and do it almost like a, a real-time a b test for the next seven to eight ten years and see what, whether i'm right or they're right well, it's a it's a great model and it's 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 unique. But but isn't it ironic um, that VCs are looking for founders who won't give up, and yet they give up on founders, or some do, um, pretty easily. And that's not not a great thing. But I want to it's, thank you, James. For, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I think it's it's just the nature of the business. I don't think the actual founders, no. sorry, the um, the um, the guys, ladies who run VCs, the the, the, the partners i don't think they intentionally want to but i think they're driven to it it's it's just one of the things it's 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 a fast-paced pressure situation they're getting fund funding in they've got to deploy and once they deploy that they their model is i've got to raise more because after all they're getting two percent management 20 percent carry they're in the business of just growing that way right not spending a lot of time in the weeds and i think that's why i'm saying i've, I've got the flexibility of being light i mean you know at this at this stage and if i become a venture fund later this year. This year is my, my goal to get my own fund together. I, I may, if you ask me in three years' time, I may be kind of going, I get it. I understand why they do that. But I mean, I hope I don't. I hope I can stay the course. Well, listen, we definitely want you to come back when you when you get to that point. Um, and it's been a pleasure. Uh, this is The Accelerator with Michael Conniff speaking with James Spurway, who has been in Singapore for 31 years, known as the fundraising angel. Um, great hands-on impact investing with founders who are not cut from the same cloth as the uh, the ones that get all the publicity. But that was really why I wanted to have you on, James. And I, I want to thank you so much. And I hope you'll you'll stay in touch and, and always um, come back to us with more of your wisdom. Appreciate it. Happy to. No, no. And it's been great. Thank you for the, the chance to get out there and, and get that, that message out there. Okay. Ciao. All right. Appreciate it.